Well, hello. Good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. My name is Paul, one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you, I would love to meet you. Feel free to come up and introduce yourself after the service. I want to show you something this morning. I took this cup of dirt from the planter of the tree back there. Hi, patio people. You're sitting right by where this dirt came from. It's fragrant. You guys know the smell of dirt? Biologists say that within this dirt are over a billion, no, sorry, in a single teaspoon of dirt, there are a billion bacteria, several yards of fungal filament. Let's not dwell on what that might be. Um, Lots of uh, protozoa and nematodes. So think about that for a moment. That means within this cup of dirt are as many bacteria as are people on the planet. There's that much life in here. As Roland said, we went to a ranch this week. And if you've ever woken up on a ranch, you know that it is not a quiet place. There are all sorts of noises. There are uh, chickens and roosters and cows and dogs, and there were bunnies everywhere and roadrunners and birds, and there's just noise. Life explodes in the morning, which is part of what makes it fun to be there. You may not think about this, but within each one of us right now, as you're listening to me, Your body is doing things that we barely understand. Your eyes and brain are processing visual elements. Your sleep gland is giving you messages that now's a great time for a nap. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I don't think there's a sleep gland. Uh, Your body, there's 25 feet of intestines where your last meal is slowly traveling through. Your white blood cells are fighting off infection. Hair is growing for some of us. Uh, Cells are being reborn. All of this is just happening while we sit here. And this is what life is. Life sustains. Life moves forward. Life keeps on growing and happening and moving until it doesn't. Because one of the realities about life is that unlike your phone or your dishwasher or your car, when you turn it off, you can't turn it back on. Once life stops, it's done. So all those billions of bacteria in here, when they stop doing whatever bacteria do, they will never do it again. All the life on that ranch, when it dies, it will stay dead. And each and every one of us will die. Our bodies will shut down. So one of the biggest things we have to figure out as living people is how do we deal with death? How do we live in such a way knowing that death awaits us? Well, we've been in this series for the last several weeks called I Am. And we've been looking at these statements that Jesus makes 
where he describes himself in a way that's very easy to understand. We've seen four of them. He's described himself as bread, as light, as a door, and as a shepherd. And each of these statements are very familiar objects. They are things most people interact with every day. Bread is the most common food. Light is the most common visual experience. A door is probably the most common architectural element we're familiar with. We walk through them every day. A shepherd would have been one of the most common occupations during that time. And so Jesus is taking things that are very common in every day and saying, they represent who I am. As we get to today, he does something similar, but but he goes a little bit more abstract. He uses a phrase that connects himself to some deeper realities in ways that we might have to work a little harder to connect to our day-to-day experience. But these are powerful, rich words. This morning, we'll hear Jesus say, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, in these simple words, Jesus offers a solution to two things. One, the reality of death for those who have died. And two, the fear of death for those who are alive. He speaks directly into our experience and addresses one of the deepest realities that we face. And we have seen in the past several years a lot of death. I know a lot of you have lost loved ones. We've seen six million people die from a pandemic that has completely changed life on this planet. We've seen the rhythms of our lives changed forever because of some of what's happened. Some of us have lost friends, parents, grandparents, co-workers. And as others have mentioned already, the last several weeks, we've seen senseless acts of violence and death. Jesus' words this morning are going to speak into that and say something that we need to hear. But Jesus doesn't just say something. He also does something. As has been the case with a lot of these stories, there's a series of events that surrounds the statements that Jesus makes. And so we saw Jesus feed 5,000 people with bread miraculously And then say, I am the bread of life. And in most of the cases, the words explain the story. But in this case, what we'll see this morning is that the story explains the words. Jesus is going to say something and then he will do something to prove that those words are true. The story that these words are embedded within is the longest narrative in the Gospel of John, and it's one of Jesus' most remarkable miracles. We'll see Jesus raise his good friend Lazarus from the dead. But he'll do one more thing, too. He'll do something, he'll say something, but he's also going to take all of that and focus it on the person he's talking to with a simple but direct question. 
We'll take that question for ourselves as a way of summing up everything we've experienced and moving forward from there. So this morning we'll see the the statement, the story, and the question. To begin with, let's look at the setting of the story that we're going to look at. This is John 11. We're going to start in verses 1 to 2, and then I'll jump to verse 5. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Down to verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, and Lazarus. The story doesn't really make sense unless we understand that this family was a very special family to Jesus. Nowhere else in the Bible is it actually said in the Gospels that Jesus loves individuals the way it says that he loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. They lived in Bethany. We've heard it's about two miles away from Jerusalem. And Jesus made Bethany his home base when he was down near Jerusalem. That's where he stayed. In a similar way, when he was up in the northern part of the country near the Sea of Galilee, he stayed at Capernaum. So Bethany was kind of his home place. This would have been his family. Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They were probably married. They probably had families of their own. And they were likely a prominent family in the village of Bethany. So all of that would make it even more surprising when we read this in verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. I'd like you to imagine that scene. A messenger comes to Jesus. Everybody knows that Jesus holds this particular family very close to his heart. And he tells Jesus, Lazarus is sick. He's near death. And Jesus says, thank you for the information. And he keeps doing whatever it was he was doing for two more days. Put yourself in that situation for a moment. How would you feel? Go ahead and shout it out. How would you feel if Jesus did that to you? Disappointed. Disappointed. Yeah, definitely. Frustrated. Betrayed. What was that over here? Mad. Yeah, definitely. Confused. Yeah, I think so. Scared. Mad. Yeah. (laughs) What's that? Fear. Yeah, afraid. Jesus does things differently than we expect him to. And particularly in this case, it's one of those dynamics where the people around Jesus had a sense of urgency about a situation, and Jesus didn't seem to share that urgency. I don't know if you've ever found yourself in that type of situation where you feel like something is very important, and you're trying to communicate it to someone else, and they don't seem to understand how important it is. In the first service, I said that, and I saw a lot of couples turn to each other and say, (laughs) yeah, we've seen that. (laughs) But we feel that all over the place in our culture. We live in this, what, what, what sociologists call an urgency culture, where everything in our lives is presented to us as if it is the most important thing. 
Every email, every text, every phone call, every, every situation has to be dealt with immediately. And we just get lost in all of that. Listen to what one author says about that. He says, this phenomenon is one I call hallucinated urgency, which causes us to constantly and thoughtlessly race through the day and interrupt our colleagues. This barrage of urgency will kill any deep work we attempt. And we tell ourselves we have no choice. But there is one small action you can take that will pop the bubble of urgency and snap you back to lucidity. Take a strategic pause. In the face of urgent things, if you just stop, you can sense the urgency. Maybe go away, maybe increase, but something changes. That's what Jesus does here. He stops and he waits. And it's nice to know that people 2,000 years later are figuring this out on their own. <laughs> when Jesus has been showing this for a long time. God has purposes which transcend our sense of urgency. Jesus even alludes to this. He says this a few verses earlier in verse 4. He says, when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. The people around, they, they, they only saw their friend who was ill. And yet Jesus saw something bigger. He said, these are God's purposes and they are larger than the urgency that you feel. And when we start to get a hold of that in our lives, it can set us free. It can set us free from the urgency that assaults us every moment and give us a grounding in something far deeper that can sustain us day to day, moment by moment. So Jesus waits and then he goes. He goes to Bethany to see what he can do. This is verse 17 through 19. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard, sorry, we're going to stop there. So Jesus comes to the city to the village, and the village is crowded with people who have come to join in the morning. Now, when we in our culture have funerals or memorial services, they're, they're somber, they're often quiet. Sometimes in a Christian setting, they're, they're filled with laughter because we are celebrating their life. But in the first century, things would have been very different. This would have been a noisy affair with a constant wailing. A first century funeral would often last about a week and they would actually have people take shifts to make sure that the wailing continued. It's hard for us to imagine. So I, I found this clip. It's from a, uh, from a documentary about a funeral in Sardinia 
which is an Italian island in the Mediterranean. So it's a Mediterranean culture. This is from about 1963. So it's much later than the first century, but it's a lot closer to what a first century mourning process would look like than what many of us have experienced. So let's watch this clip. Earlier, the documentary had said that this wailing would have been able to be heard miles away from the village. I was trying to help us figure out how to get into this. I was going to try and do my own version of the wailing, but decided a video clip would be safer. <laughs> so you're welcome. Jesus comes in, and this type of noise would be seeping from the village. Everybody would be in mourning for Lazarus. And when somebody dies, you, you want to do something to express the horror of what's just happened. We know, we sense it deep within ourselves that death is a violation. Death is an interruption. It's, it's something that comes in uninvited. And when that happens, you want to, to scream or shout or wail. You want to tell the world that this ought not be. And so in this age, you would have people come and they would take shifts to keep the noise going because you want to make it clear to everybody in the area that something wrong has happened. Jesus walks into that kind of setting. And I think for us to really understand the words that Jesus says, it's helpful for us to understand that context. And it's not that hard because as I mentioned, a lot of us have lost people. We know people who have passed away and we have felt that grief. So I want to invite you just for a moment to dwell on that. Who, whom have you lost recently? Maybe it's somebody close to you. Maybe it's a grandparent or a child. I have a friend who lost a child years ago and he said, the grief of my lost child is like a dog that follows me every day. Sometimes it's a puppy that I barely notice. And sometimes it's a snarling German shepherd that makes me unable to function. But it's always there. That's the setting that Jesus speaks into. The grief and tragedy of death. And into that, he says these words. Martha has come out from the village, probably to get away from the chaos, to meet him. He speaks to her, and this is what he says. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. 
Now, Jesus says two things here, and they're actually very nicely in parallel addressing two different issues. So I want to show this diagram, this kind of picture of the words that helps make that clear. Jesus says he is the resurrection and addresses those who have died who will live again. But then he says he is the life addressing those who are currently living, saying you will not face death. And so in one statement, he addresses both the living and the dead, saying that he will bring resurrection and eternal life to each. He is the solution to everything about life and death. So let's take each of these statements in turn and dig a little bit deeper into both of them. See, when Jesus told Martha that Lazarus would rise again, she said, yeah, I know. I know what you're talking about. Because by this time in the first century, the Jews had established this expectation about resurrection. They believed, partly from the Hebrew scriptures, partly from an accumulation of tradition, that far off in the future, there would come a day when everybody was resurrected. And on that day, God would bring ultimate justice to the world all the injustices that they suffered on a day-to-day basis would finally be rectified on that day in the future. That was what they thought of when they heard the resurrection. And I think for a lot of people, even today, religious faith is something like that. It's a faraway thing. It's an abstract concept It's a set of principles or ideas that that might affect you in some way off in the future, but it doesn't always have a lot to do with what's going on now. One of the famous, most famous atheists of the 20th century, Sigmund Freud, described religion this way. He said, religious beliefs are illusions, fulfilling the oldest strongest, most urgent wishes of humanity. The secret of their strength is the strength of those wishes. And he goes on to say, it's because of how strongly we feel things that we create this far off distant illusion that comforts us, that that numbs the pain we feel today with the illusion of hope. Jesus walks into that world in the first century that's expecting the resurrection to be a far off thing and he flips it on its head. He stands there and he talks to Martha and he says, I am the resurrection. He doesn't say, I will bring the resurrection or the resurrection is coming, don't worry. He says, the resurrection is now And the resurrection is me. He reorients the whole expectation and hope, dragging it into the present and centering it on himself. The resurrection is here. The resurrection is Jesus. And in doing that, Jesus takes the the far off faith that, that Freud says numbs us to today's concerns and he makes it the center of today. It's not a far off illusion that that comforts us. It's a present reality. It's a resurrected Christ who lives with us, who walks with us, not just on Sunday morning, but Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, all throughout our lives. 
Jesus is the resurrection for all of us. And that helps to lead us into the next thing he says. He will resurrect the dead, but he's also the life for the living. The statement is almost nonsensical. Jesus says, I am the life. What what does that even mean? I I have life. I, I give life. I enjoy life, but I am the life. What does Jesus mean by that? Well, in other places in scripture, we we know that Jesus was at creation. We know from the book of Colossians, Paul says that all things hold together in him. We see when God first created man and woman that he breathed the breath of life into them. And so when Jesus says, I am the life, I think what he's saying is that the billions of bacteria that are in this cup of dirt owe their existence to Jesus. That all of the animals on that ranch, the the chickens and the birds and the cows and the bunnies and the road runners and whatever else is there, all of them, the life that they experience is because Jesus is there in them in some way that we cannot even begin to understand. And each and every one of us owe every second of our existence to the presence of Jesus in our lives. The whole world does. Most people don't even know it. They think it's a biological principle. They think it's something that runs on its own. What they don't realize is that it runs because the author and sustainer of life makes it run. Jesus is the life. He is there wherever life happens. And when we get, when we start to understand that, we start to experience that bridge from the the far off religious ideals to the everyday reality of what we know. Imagine if, All the life we've been talking about, the bacteria, the animals, all of us. Imagine if a single bacteria were discovered on the surface of Mars. Wouldn't that be the the biggest discovery literally ever? And yet this planet is full of life. This is Jesus, the presence all around us. I've been reading a new fantasy novel that has a character who's described as a creator king. And uh, this character builds a village. And this is the way he describes his village. I thought this was very similar to what we're talking about. He says, look around this place. See the complexity of everything I've made. The water system, the structures, the life forms, each of them unique yet part of a complex network. I've poured my mind and soul into everything that I've made. If I were to withdraw my creative spark from any of my created beings, they would cease to exist. But I sustain them every moment so they can experience life. I see some of you recognizing this book. This is from The Shattered King, which is a novel from Ernest Yip, who is a member here of our church. I would recommend it to you. And this is an allegory of God. 
If Jesus were to withdraw his creative spark from any of the living creatures we know of, they would cease to exist. That's what Jesus means when he says, I am the life. It's so much bigger than a simple version of Christianity that says, Jesus died for your sins so that when you die, you can go to heaven. That's true, but it's not the whole truth. The whole truth is so much bigger than that. Jesus keeps me alive every moment of every day. With that knowledge of what this statement means, we can think about this question that Jesus asks. Because after saying this to Martha, he he looks at her and he asks her a simple question. Here's verses 26 through 27. He says, do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who is coming into the world. Yes, I believe that you are the Christ. This is a remarkable statement. It's one of the clearest articulations of the identity of Jesus in the gospel of John. Martha is saying absolute truth about Jesus. He is the Christ. But it's also, if you're like me, I I want a little more from her. I want her to, to see a little more of the big picture. One commentator says it this way. He says, Martha said yes, when undoubtedly the implications of this yes are beyond her comprehension. See, I think Martha has a certain kind of faith that's appropriate for where she's at, in fact, is remarkable for where she's at, but there's still more to go. There's still more she could engage in, a deeper level she could see. And I think that should be both an encouragement and a challenge for us. An encouragement because wherever you are in your journey of faith, there is a step you could take. And a challenge because wherever you are, there is a step you could take. So imagine Jesus says that to you. Imagine hearing those words from Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. And then he turns to you and he asks, do you believe this? Do you believe this? My experience of faith has been similar to a relationship, something that starts one way, grows into something different, moves into a new phase. And I've seen throughout my life a lot of different phases of faith. And they're not necessarily linearly, it's not as if things are necessarily getting better. It's just changed. As a child, I understood the stories of God and I I believed them. As a young adult, as an adolescent, I those stories got fleshed out in a community in my high school youth group and they became real to me. In college, I struggled with various aspects of sin and and relationships and intellectual doubts. And and through all of that, my, my, my faith took a different kind of form. And then I got married and I experienced Christ in the hardships and the joys of marriage and then became a parent and I've dealt with anxiety. And in each of those stages, my faith 
has changed and shifted because Jesus has been there with me as my life has changed. And so for Jesus to ask this of us, do you believe this? Is to say that wherever you are, your answer could be something else, some next step. Maybe you don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, but you're here and you're asking questions and maybe Jesus is inviting you to put your faith in him, to experience life. Maybe you do believe and you've believed for a long time. I know some of you have, but there's something else. Life always moves on and there's some next stage where Jesus is inviting you to understand and experience your life as connected to him, that source of life in a new way. What's remarkable about Martha is that she said yes while Lazarus was still in the grave. Remember I said that the story here explained the words. The wailing was still happening in the background. Lazarus was still buried. And Martha said, yes, I believe you are the Christ. And then Jesus demonstrated it by raising Lazarus from the dead. This is how faith works a lot of the time. Sometimes we think, I'll believe if I see it. But the way faith works, it's often, you'll see it once you believe. The faith comes first, and then God demonstrates himself in powerfully abundant ways. When we get that then, when we experience that, maybe that's linked back to the urgency that Jesus was able to somehow be immune to. Maybe his confidence, knowing the purposes of God, knowing what he had seen, knowing how things would play out, gave him the freedom to not be rushed and controlled by the sense of anxiety around him, but to be centered. And that's what he gave to Martha. And she said, yes, I believe you are the Christ. Well, sorry to tell you that billions of bacteria are going to die. All the bacteria in this dirt will stop. All the life we see will end. You and I will die. But because Jesus has said, I am the resurrection and the life, when we are connected to him, when we believe in him, when we find our identity in Christ, when we accept his offer of salvation, death has lost its power. Death is solved. We don't have to fear death. We don't have to worry about it. We don't have to live as if death hangs over us. And of course, this whole story, Jesus' statement, the, the, the resurrection of Lazarus, all of this is a foreshadowing of his own resurrection. When he will prove once and for all, not only the truth of these words, but all of his words, Jesus himself will demonstrate that death has no power. Is there a next step for you in terms of what believing that looks like? 
Together, we're going to take a next step by celebrating the Lord's table. This is a meal that Jesus gave us as a ceremony to repeatedly observe, to help all of these ideas become real to us in a, in a physical way that you can taste and touch and smell. And so we're going to come up, we're going to take this meal together. And it's appropriate to have a meal to remind us that Jesus creates life because we have to eat to live. We eat every day, hopefully most of us, so that we can keep living. And this meal reminds us as we take the bread and the cup into us that it is Jesus's body and Jesus's blood that animates us and gives us life. This is our connection to the creator and sustainer of all things. The way we're going to do this is that ushers will dismiss you first in the center section down the middle aisle. You can come. There's the individual self-serve cups if you're most comfortable with that. There's also gluten-free matzo that you can dip in the cup if you'd prefer that. And then go back on the side aisles. The ushers will then dismiss the side parts of the worship center. And back on the patio, you guys have a table there and an usher back there that will do the same for you. So let's come to the table. If you count yourself a follower of Jesus, you're welcome to celebrate this meal as a way of sensing and experiencing Jesus as the life. Let's pray. Father, thanks for these powerful words that make it clear how central, how universal Jesus is to all that we experience, even as we hear the birds singing in the background. God, that's you. That's your son, Jesus. That's life everywhere. Help us to to live with that knowledge, to stay connected to Jesus as the source of life. And may this meal that you've given us be a reminder of that. May it sustain us and feed us and nourish us as we go out from here. Father, thanks for this community to celebrate with, to learn together with, and to worship you with. Thanks for how good you are to us and the life you give even in the face of so much death. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.